Today, we're going to start the session with a conversation with Christopher Mirabil, Senior Managing Director at Launchpad Venture Group. Do you go by Chris or Christopher? I go by Christopher. All right. Well, Christopher, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a bit about your background as well as Launchpad. Sure. Um, so my, my background is um, uh, I actually was an English major and I started my career in strategy consulting and I actually ended up getting a law degree when I was a young person and worked uh, in a very tech focused corporate firm. And I ended up uh, taking one of my clients public, uh, a big enterprise software company. And I went in-house and became an executive in that company, uh, ultimately um, as the CFO, uh, and then <clears throat> became a full-time angel when we sold that company to uh, another enterprise software company. So my, my sort of skill set and background really is in and around technology and software. And I obviously have a you know, pretty good working knowledge of legal and contractual and business related issues. And Launchpad is a, is it an angel group or is it a formal fund? Launchpad is um, a network based uh, group of about 180 investors um, uh, with a few affiliated funds, but each of the individuals work uh, on their own. And we put okay. about, about $10 million to work every year. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we've been around for 20 years. We've backed about 130, maybe 140 companies, um, had about 70 exits, um, over the years. And, uh, our focus is really on, um, science and technology centric companies making, you know, going to market, uh, through B2B go to market approaches and, we work on sort of need to have rather than nice to have types of products. So we don't do things like food or consumer packaged goods or gaming or gambling. We really focus on sort of um, B2B need to have kinds of things in the science and technology worlds. And um, within B2B, it's a big focus area for us. B2B software, software as a service, AI, platform as a service, all of that is a big focus area for us. Now, do you do both enterprise and SMB? Um, we're classic venture investors in terms of our psychology. So, um, you know, we'll look at a, a company focusing on uh, medium-sized enterprises if we think the market size is going to be big enough to support venture economics. Um, we're a little bit different from a VC fund um, in the sense that, uh, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but uh, you know, a, a, the typical venture capital fund sort of has a surplus of capital and a shortage of human capital, right? And um, a network of investors is the other way around. So um, the difference being that um, we can get interested and make money um, investing in a company servicing a uh, 150 or $200 million market in a way that uh, VCs wouldn't. But if you're going after a market much smaller than that, it's kind of hard to make the math work if you're going to try to fuel the business on risk equity because the, the time and risk adjusted returns just aren't going to be there 
for a risk equity investor. It's probably not the best kind of fuel to run that sort of engine on. Great. So you've said a lot of things here that I will double click down on and uh, uh, elaborate. But let me first set the um, specifics straight. Uh, what is the geographical boundary of your investment interest? Launchpad is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and um, we really do take a pretty intensive hands-on approach. And so um, we limit ourselves mostly to uh, the Northeast. Our, our membership base is comes up and down the Eastern seaboard, but um, we'll do New England and, and the New York area and upstate New York, but we tend, uh, we tend not to invest that much out of the Northeast. Okay. Now, um... Let's start with some of the mechanics of how an entrepreneur would work with you. Let's say I want to, uh, you know, send the deal over to you, to your group. How would we work uh, on uh, that? And how, does, how do you show it to the 100 investors in your group, et cetera? It's just a, you know. Sure. Well, like everything, um, you know, we, we get a fair amount of deal flow. So, you know, having a warm introduction is helpful. It's not an elitism kind of a thing so much as a human nature pragmatism sort of a thing. And our members are all um, available on, on LinkedIn. So if you search for Launchpad Venture Group on LinkedIn, you'll probably find someone in your network, even if you're an entrepreneur, um, you know, who's at the beginning of her career, you know, you'll probably find some second degree connection. Um, so that's that's certainly one way to find a little bit of a warm intro. But uh, any entrepreneur can uh, go right to our website, launchpadventuregroup.com. It's a long URL. <laughs> and um, and just hit the entrepreneur button and just fill out a, a short summary profile about the company. And that will put you in our queue. And um, we will reach out. And we actually have um, a couple different programs. Uh, we... Um, you know, we have a traditional sort of monthly main forum where companies that are, you know, presumptively really ready to work with with investors like ourselves, you know, present. But we also have, and that's usually three companies a month. And, you know, there's a, two out of the three of them tend to go right into diligence. Um, but we also have a catalyst program which in which we look at about a dozen additional companies a month. And that's really not intended to be as much of a, investment forum as an opportunity to begin a relationship, get to know some investors, get some informal feedback. And we, we poll the participants um, and give written feedback to every company to try to be helpful. Um, and typically what happens out of a dozen companies in a month is that you know about a third really aren't gonna be a fit. And we're very, very honest with them about that. So we, we think it's a sin to waste entrepreneur time. So if it's really so not going to be a, um, go ahead, go ahead. Just in the interest of time, Christopher, let's, uh, in our, the way we work is that uh, I will send you deals. If we, if you're working with 1 million by 1 million, I will be sending you the deals and they're fully vetted to fit, fit or not your, um, I wouldn't be sending you stuff that you would, you know, reject out of the gate. That's, that mm -hmm. due diligence is done on our end. So given that, what is the stage, what is the check size that you, uh, you guys like to write? What stage do you want to come in? What do you want to see in the validation metrics? Sure. Um, we, uh, you know, we're typically participating in sort of the classic 500 to $2.5 million um, round. 
and uh, kind of seed. I mean, these terms have become meaningless, but we, on average, we tend to invest most frequently right at the point of market entry. So there's a minimum viable product and there might be a couple customers piloting, not, not necessarily a lot of revenue, but you know, there isn't a lot of technical risk left in the company. We know the product can be built and it has at least a, a value prop. And we really tend to be funding that first go-to-market uh, testing of that first go-to-market hypothesis in search of trying to get a repeatable sales model. So that's really the stage we do most commonly. But you want to see some customer engagement if, yeah if, if we know the entrepreneur or um, we know the category exists we'll invest mm -hmm. as early as the PowerPoint stage um, but if it's an unknown or a first-time entrepreneur and it's a speculative product category um, yeah. we probably you know we don't need to see a ton of revenue but we need to get comfortable that this is going to be a top buying priority for the kind of customer that they're targeting yeah, okay, great. Now, um, you talked about a specific category that we have been paying a lot of attention to long before, you know, it became fashionable to pay any attention to this category, which is that, you know, smaller TAM than what is considered venture scale. You know, the venture scale TAM typically has been, oh, it has to be a billion dollar or multi-billion dollar TAM. And that has left that category of 150, 200, 500 million dollar TAM as a, you know, undesirable category. But my observation has been for a long time that, you know, there's a lot of exits, strategic exits in enterprise software in particular, um, other kinds of as well that happen in the, you know, sub 50 million range. And to, ha to make money off a sub $50 million exit, you have to build a company in a very capital efficient way and so that everybody can make money. But that category of like $150, $200 million TAM where it fits strategically into somebody else's portfolio and can go to market through their sales channel is actually a very attractive category. And, and for angels or small and small funds, it's a very, very good category. I, 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 I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, I feel like you're, you're reading my playbook back to me. And I'll give you a great example of that if you want, just one anecdote. Yes, I, I was going to ask for an example, exactly. We, we had a great, this is, if, if this isn't a perfect example, I don't know what it is. We had um, a company that was um, a, a SaaS company. It, 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 it wasn't technically recurring revenue, but it was repeating transactional revenue. They had a lot of repeat customers. Um, and uh, they got a thoroughly mediocre uh, revenue multiple. They exited for 4X revenue. And that deal was a 21X cash on cash return for us and a very good IRR. And the reason for that is that they were very capital efficient. We seeded them about 400K and then we put another million in and the team got to a $20 million revenue run rate and got acquired for 4X okay. revenue, clean little uh, cash acquisition for 80 million bucks. And it worked out to a 21X return for us. There you go. So by the way, if, you, if you're interested in us profiling this case study, please send them to us, we'll do that because 
we have a bootstrapping to exit track where, and we consider these kinds of very small amounts of capital uh, invested deals as bootstrapping, basically. You know, you have to, to be able to get to $20 million with 1.4 million in, in cash in, you have to bootstrap. And, and that's something that we really believe in and we really support very and, and promote very extensively. So yeah. we're very much with you on, on uh, this line of thinking. And, um, you know, like you said, there's, whereas these very large funds can only invest very large amounts of money, otherwise their human capital to capital ratio does not work out. Yeah, they, you just, they just can't manage that many deals. It's very hard for them to play. Exactly, you cannot manage that many deals. That's right. The, but um, you have the to do that, the, and that's very attractive. Yeah, the the it's interesting. Um, you know, the there you read about large exits all the time. You think they grow on trees, but yeah, you know what are there a handful, a couple dozen billion dollar startup exits in a year at most out of something in the ballpark of 400 to 500,000 startups created in the US each year, statistically speaking, pushing an entrepreneur into a high capital, big exit path is statistically speaking, dooming her to failure. Um, That's right. The, the average M&A in the United States is well below $50 million. That's right. And there are certain companies where you'd be an idiot not to go big on the capital, right? I mean, there's, there's some that are serving a global market of like a Snapchat or Instagram or something, and you've got no choice but to use capital as a weapon and go big. But for many, many entrepreneurs, they're better served by staging capital more thoughtfully and not locking themselves in. There's a lot of different harvest points that yes. on the capital curve and and often entrepreneurs are better served by selling and letting a private equity or a venture capital or somebody else take the business off their hands and going back and starting again and doing the fun part that they like the most yeah i was talking to an entrepreneur yesterday this is his fourth rodeo he's uh, and this time he's already found product market fit and it's scaling and it's going to be a unicorn kind of deal. But his first three ventures were bootstrapping to exit. He got like small amounts of capital. Each time he got like tens of millions in exit. And, and that's a very successful career. Very, very wealthy, um, you know, career profile. Yep. So, yes, we are very much in tune. And, uh, and I would love to. I'm very happy that you came and, and uh, reinforced this point of view. We are, we, we've been... If you go back and look at my work, I've been promoting this point of view for 15 years now. And it's, it's been a pushing a rock up the hill because the TechCrunch style media writes about unicorns, writes about how much funding. And, and it's like, you know, who raised the most funding is the game that entrepreneurs are playing. And, and, and the problem is the, the naive first time entrepreneurs are learning a bad you know, example that, oh, that's what I need to do because everybody else is doing it and that's what TechCrunch is writing about. Yep. The, so, um, anyway. you know, sometimes I feel like a, a stodgy value-based investor in a momentum-based world. And, you know, you sometimes will see venture capitalists say that 
they never focus on exits. Well, I hope their LPs don't hear them say that because it's nonsense. Of course they do. You and they, they say that, you know, oh, you know, uh, exiting early is a crime against nature. Well, not if the market size isn't big enough um, and forcing, yeah. like, you know, the company to take a bunch of capital. It can never pay off. You know, it's sort of like if, um, if, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail and you just jam yeah. capital into every company and it might work out or it might not, but it's basically reckless disregard for the founder's well-being. Yeah, and another truism that I hate is this go big or go home. That is such bullshit, it's not even funny. If, if the market anyway. is a truly massive market, it, it might apply, but in many cases, you're a couple pivots away from a really big market. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing um, in your deal flow as well as in your portfolio in terms of interesting trends. I always like to ask, you know, because that uh, early stage deal flow is indicative of what's happening in the pipeline of technology, pipeline of, you know, interesting developments. What are you seeing? What's interesting? Well, um, obviously, asset prices are stupid right now. Um, and uh, that's that's difficult because doing the kind of investing you and I do, you have to be disciplined about price and about staging capital. So those are difficult circumstances. Um, and I feel like we're in, you know, there's a lot of hype about, you know, crypto and, and so forth. Um, but uh, we're not paying much attention to that. Um, I'm not I'm sure crypto is going to be an important technology down the road. Uh, but that's not really a focus for us. I feel a little bit like um, we're seeing very good opportunity, relatively speaking, in the health and life sciences area right now. It's particularly hot in Boston. And um, there seems to be in tech, there isn't any particularly well-defined locomotive right this second, you know. Um, the transition from PC to client server or you know, web services or um, internet in the dot-com era or, or the, um, you know, uh, mobile. We're in a time right now where it's blocking and tackling. The really, really big companies like uh, Google, Facebook, um, Apple are, are just so dominant that um, it's harder for little startups to really get in and change standards and, and create new norms. And so um, there's a lot of, of little marginal and incremental improvements. We have basic things we have to solve like cybersecurity. Um, I think 5G will be a little bit of a locomotive once it becomes more widely deployed. Um, but we're, you know, we're, not, we're not sort of seeing a one unifying super hot tech trend right now that's really becoming a um a train that everybody's jumping on we're seeing a lot of incremental improvement across a lot of things we also feel like certain categories like martech you know digital um digital marketing a lot of those categories are getting kind of tired um mm -hmm. and you and you're finding that you know, is very very crowded you find a little product market fit and you make a little bit of a difference and then the tool loses its effectiveness in six months. Consumers are fickle. They're, you know, the next thing is just one click away. And so um, we're, we're 
being really very thoughtful before we commit money into sort of the ad tech martech space um and you know we're spending more time on uh problems that are sort of buried deep in industries so for example we're working with a company right now that's um very focused on uh, one aspect of um operations in the self-storage market that's a market that's growing steadily, but it's also been invaded by some big REITs and private equity firms, and there's a lot of roll-ups, and there's some real business process problems um, that need to be solved. And so we're working with a company that's that's doing that. Um, we do a lot of med device, a lot of diagnostic, healthcare IT, digital health. Um, but we look, we look for... Um, We'll look at we'll look at anything, and it doesn't have to be sexy or consumer oriented or planning to b build a, a billion dollar brand. It has to be solving you know, a problem um, that people care about. Do you have comment about um, locomotive? I think the the theme that we see constantly right now is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Now that being applied to a lot of small problems i think is a perfectly viable way to build businesses so where there is domain knowledge and where there is in in some esoteric space is fine and and there you can actually build significant businesses applying yeah. that concept into I, vertical vertical SaaS, basically I, I think you're i think you're right to a point um it's a little bit like uh, you know it's not an end in and of itself it's a it's a tool and there's an enormous amount of hype around what basically boils down to statistics-informed decision-making. Um, a lot of what's called ML and AI is nonsense. It's really just looking at a, a medium-sized data set and making a statistics-informed decision, and that's great. And I think that AI um, is, it's a little bit like a website in 1994, you know, you, you could say, oh, you know, we have the web and it's a, now every business has the web, you know, or there was a time when people were saying, oh, I'm a digital marketer. It's like, well, now every marketer is natively digital. So um, I think AI and ML are, are, you know, really headed towards being very ubiquitous. And I think that for most applications where being 90% correct is good enough, it's an incredibly valuable business tool. And, and I agree with you that it's an accelerant. Um, and it's a way that um, uh, a challenger can leapfrog incumbents by investing in um, better, faster, smarter software. In businesses where 90% correct isn't good enough, that is a, and you, you can't rely on the existing tools and, and out there in open source and otherwise, and you're having to build uh, fresh AI with a fresh data set from bare metal that that is not an angel's game that is a um that's true. That big, is true. big capital play that is true and um you know we we have a big coverage of ai we have the thought leaders in ai series that where we cover and we see a lot of great companies come through very recently we haven't even published the story yet it's coming um i saw a company uh, called icera and that was really impressive there not only doing AI-driven customer support, they can actually take over the screen share of the custom of the client's uh, or the customer's computer and fix whatever needs to be fixed in AI full automation. That I think is yep. really impressive. So 
So, yep. so and you're right. That is not an angels game. That is that requires big capital. One of the things that I sort of talk about that illustrates your point is that um, you know, as a general matter, most startups their biggest competition is um, is uh, inertia. You know, the the existing you know good enough and. Um, you know, to break into a market like that, you sort of have to be 10x better, faster, or cheaper. And AI and ML really can be enabling tools to allow you to leapfrog the incumbents. So I, I agree with you on that. But you have to understand what you're getting into. And an entrepreneur who gets up and she's just hand waving, we have AI, we have AI, send, send your checks. You got to dig in a little further than that. There are a lot of wannabe AI companies out there that are not real AI. They're just buzzword AI companies, and they're and I mean I don't think they're going to get anywhere really. Very good. Well, very nice to meet you, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, collaborate in the future. I'd like nothing Thank more than coming. that. I I appreciate you having me, and it was wonderful to get to know you. Thank you for the work you're doing. I think. Um, 1M by 1M is truly uh, impactful and, and helpful, and I'm grateful that you're investing in our shared community. So I appreciate what you do. Thank you. And by the way, my roots are in the Boston area. You're, uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I lived my first seven years in, uh, at MIT and Smith College. So uh, Excellent. Come back and see us. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. It's just, it's just like Silicon Valley, except without the hype. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the area, and I love it, actually. <laughs> okay. We'll talk to you soon. Happy All New right. Year. All right. Great. Bye -bye. Nice to meet you.